To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, it's happening, guys. Got a great episode of Eastman's Elevated for you this week. I have on John Dudley. Uh, John Dudley, you guys have probably heard of him. Um, he's a super influential bow hunter and does so much for the sport. Uh, he's hunting with and coaching guys like Joe Rogan and Jocko Willink. And we talk about that in the podcast. And and then John is just such a great comprehensive resource for archery. He's just he's teaching things the right way and the correct form. And he shot at a high level for so many years and then is also coached on that high level, coaching Olympic athletes. And so he's just a great next level resource for archery. And so it was a real treat for me to get him on the podcast and, and be able to ask him, ask him some questions about his execution and the the way he goes in depth and describes things it it was better than even i could imagine it like as he talks about a release and 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 knowing it like the clutch on your car and so he's just a great resource for archery and so that's what we dive into is archery and bow hunting and he's had a podcast for years so he's a great storyteller and and he tells some great ones on the podcast so uh, i really enjoy it i know you guys are going to enjoy this week's podcast with john dudley I uh, want to thank our sponsors for the show. So I want to thank um, Sitka. Uh, Sitka builds the best technical hunting clothing out there. And um, John Dudley also uses Sitka. Um, it's just such a great technical mountaineering system. And and I've been hunting here in the deep snow in November and December. And I just have the layers that I can take on and off to uh, traverse and mountaineer country. You know, when I sit down to glass to keep warm and it, it really keeps me out there longer and hunting more effective and and I can just handle the conditions better. So I absolutely love their gear. Uh, they make great layering systems and, and they make systems from early season to late season. So I started my season uh, uh, hunting out on Hawaii for mouflon sheep and it was so hot and humid. I mean, going through 100 ounces or more of water a day. And they have great systems that help protect me from the sun. That lightweight hoodie is one of my favorite pieces and goes on all my hunts. And you can wear it as the weather gets hot in those early August and September hunts or like on Hawaii like I was. And all the way to the late season, uh, I got a new pair of cold weather gear that um, – or the – I wear the um, – the, the puffy pants, God, those things are so nice for wintertime. To throw those on over your pants when you're sitting on a on a vantage point is just priceless. So Sitka gear, uh, everything from early season to late season, and just great technical gear. Uh, so thanks for to uh, Sitka for sponsoring the podcast. I also want to thank Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, Sportsman's Warehouse does a great job of carrying the best brands. They also carry Sitka in there. And and the thing I like about Sportsman's Warehouse is you can go in and you can touch and try on and look through and and really test the gear, look at the gear in person before ordering it or committing to it, uh, try it on, see how the fit is. And, and then they've just got such a great knowledgeable staff. And so, you know, they, they've got staff members that are passionate and they've got, you know, people in the optics department, people in the clothing department, people in the 
in the archery department. And, and they have such a knowledgeable staff that they work really hard to um, get the right people in the right position. So I always mention my buddy Chase manages the Fairbanks store. And he's always work, working really hard to get the right people in the right departments to get you the right help. So if you need anything, make sure to stop by Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, I was just by there the other day. Um, I was actually, well, it's nice they have fishing stuff too. So um, I had to get some different hooks. So I love fishing like these beads in the wintertime. I fish them for steelhead. And I do like an Alaska trailer hook. And then that trailer hook, I love like a Gamagatsu, like size two for steelhead. And then I, I got a smaller size for trout, but they just have everything I need. And I can go in there and get the right hooks I need for that bead setup. So I was just in there the other day grabbing that. Uh, I really want to thank Sportsman's Warehouse for their support of the podcast. And with that, let's see, um, just got back from a couple day bender over um, hunting mule deer. Oh, just trying so hard during the rut. Crunchy snow got me, but uh, put on some great miles and elevation and close calls. Uh, I've got a live podcast I've recorded during the, the entire process. And I may fit a couple more days in, but uh, I'm going to head over to the Eastman's office this week catch up with those guys. We are going to record the 200th episode, so I'm super excited about it. I've uh, been brainstorming and scratching down ideas. Uh, we're going to be able to do a long podcast for it. Um, um, it it's going to be really fun. Uh, looking forward to that and looking forward to catching up to the guys. And I'm um, going to work on the podcast a little bit. Um, so super excited about that. And yeah, just be good to catch up to those guys and hear some hunting stories of the year. And, and um, we're going to do the Christmas party as well. So yeah, it should be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. So Headed over there towards the end of the week, and um, yeah, keep on keeping on. Uh, we're into winter time now. Um, man, looking towards the off season, still might have a couple more days hunting left, and uh, maybe another trip to Arizona. Just can't help but want to go down there. But uh, all good on my side. Let's get this podcast started. So it's it's John Dudley, me, your host Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Man, I just like a real authentic conversation, a good back and forth, and um, so wherever the conversation leads. Yeah, no problem. Yep, that's that's me. Yeah, well, you're a pro at this, so basically I just need to pass you the baton and let you go. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I'm, I might be a little rusty. This is my first first podcast in a few months. I've been so focused on hunting, and, and, uh, and then once I kind of – filled my last tag so to speak i i just came home and did what most bucks do and just i've climbed in front of the the food trough and and i'm either in my kitchen at my grill or in my bed (laughs) (laughs) uh getting back to normal life with your family and your business it's it's good to take a break and focus on hunting season but i'm just in the same boat now where i'm just trying to get back to normal life yep yeah exactly exactly spend time with the family i still got like i'm still hunting a late muley season tag but i pretty much burned about all my vacation time and have to get back to the business but weekend warrior down there and kind of chase some good bucks around in that cold november snow but um man it looked like you had a heck of a season congratulations yeah it was uh it was a great season honestly and i don't know i was I don't know if I was more excited about 
some of the animals I got personally or just some of the experiences I got got to share with some new people to the archery community that I was really excited about getting out there. Um, Jocko was probably the main one, you know, uh, really wanted to get him on an elk hunt and finally was able to, to make that happen. And then even though I had a tag too, I just really focused on being over his shoulder and trying to, you know, teach as much as I could and make sure it was really exciting for him, which it was. And, and, uh, yeah, we've got a great asset to the hunting community now. Man, I'd say, yeah, that guy, um, he's so fun to listen to, uh, so confident, such a, such great leadership skills, but yeah, how, how awesome of you to get him started in archery and, and really like as, as we all start getting older, you start to appreciate this time with family and friends. And so likewise, like I had an amazing season and I had the time, but just spending that quality time with family and friends and, you know, helping my buddy Dan arrow his best early season high country archery mule deer, you know, like helping my dad, uh, helping my daughter, you know, like all that stuff. Uh, it, it almost means more to me than my personal successes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I'm thankful that, you know, the people before my time uh, felt the same way. I know that my grandfather and my uncle that kind of led the way for me in the hunting world, it was obvious that they really wanted me to have success and they found joy in that. And, you know, looking looking back, I realized you know, some of the spots they put me in were probably the spots where, well, I look back and I realize, you know, they said, oh, we've been seeing a really good deer. And, you know, they put me in that spot and I ended up getting the deer and then they ended up not getting anything for the rest of the season. And you realize, you know, that was probably the best shot at a mature deer that they knew of. And, you know, they were putting, you know, this little kid there to get them excited about it. And they were, you know, putting someone else first. And yeah, now that I'm, you know, at times doing the same type of thing, I can totally see the past and how it actually happened versus probably what I would have just remembered of, Oh, I went out and shot this deer. It's more like, no, someone did homework for you <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and just made, let you make a shot. You know what I mean? So true. Like put you in the place in it. Um, when you're hunting with other people, I find myself like wanting that encounter for them almost more so than I want it for myself. Like when I'm hunting with my daughter, like you say, you, you put her first, like you just want to create an encounter for her. If you know, find a buck that you guys can play on, even if she doesn't harvest it, just give them that excitement that'll light that fire in them. Like, like what those guys passed on to us, like my dad, my family. And I remember, you know, they didn't always teach me the right way to do things. I had to learn through the, you know, the, uh, the life lessons of hard knocks a lot of times, but they put me in the right positions and they shared their excitement of the outdoors with me, you know, which is, um, which putting yourself or putting somebody else first before you, you know, that's just huge. Oh yeah. 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 And it's, it's really needed probably now more than ever. Um, because a lot of these people that are interested in this whole movement right now of, you know, harvesting their own game and, you know, knowing where their food came from. There's a lot of people that are willing to dabble that never would have in the past. And 
yeah, making sure those people have that experience is is really, really important. And, you know, I kind of dove down that rabbit hole several years ago. And what's making it hard now is I've had to go on some hunts where some of those people who I was always hunting with and really trying to, you know, trying to lead the way for them to have a good experience and have success. It's almost like I'm having to kind of take their training wheels off and be like, okay, I'm going to push the back of your seat and you're going to go that way. You kind of know what to do. (laughs) Go that way and, you know, make sure you're back after dark, (laughs) you know, and, uh, and some of them go out and don't have near the success and, start making a bunch of mistakes and, you know, get frustrated and, you know, say, I really suck at this. I didn't realize, you know, how much, how much it was really helping my success having someone else there. Now I feel like I don't really know how to do it. And it's hard because I need to be able to push them away and let them do their own thing and then focus on, you know, putting the training wheels on someone else's bow, you know, and getting them out there. Uh, but, I think overall, if you do it, even if you only do it once, uh, the satisfaction you'll feel from it just, it really does outweigh, you know, success that, that happens to the self, you know, it's a, it's a pretty unique feeling. Yeah, it sure is. Um, that's really well put, John. So yeah, it is. It's like, uh, you can give a man a fish and feed him for a day or teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. So you're giving these guys the tools and then you kind of have to push them on their way to, to go out and do it. And it's tough. Like it's bow hunting animals. It's one of the toughest endeavors you're ever going to take on. And especially, you know, like for the, the blue collar average opportunities a lot of guys have hunting public ground or hunting private ground you know that that hasn't been managed for you know opportunities or a bunch of trophy bucks running around so yeah it's extremely tough out there and you know guys that have been bow hunting a long time you know guys like me and you like i i've seen the payoff you've seen the payoff and so just like this season you're willing to put tens a hundred of of days and hundreds of hours into it because you know you know that eventually it's going to pay off but those guys that are just getting started they haven't had that payoff yet or that little dose of adrenaline you get when you see a buck through your scope or you're going to get a chance or an opportunity so it's really just like like sharing that and giving them the tools to be able to be successful out there and then just kind of sending them on their way for their own personal journey to learn. And then, you know, they have to take some responsibility themselves and keep going out too. Yeah, no question about it. And it, you know, on that same subject, I feel like something that you said earlier in that, in that last statement, you know, you were talking about guys that that go out to public land and, and really grind. And I know from a lot of friends that have hunted public land for a long time, the amount of traffic that's out there now because of the whole, you know, quote unquote, public land movement, there's the amount of traffic is, is, you know, a significant amount more than what it used to be, you know, to, there was a lot of guys that, put in some work, found some little honey holes and, and that was it. But the more and more traffic that starts hitting these public lands, the more guys that have been doing it a while push a little bit further. And then now they're in that, they found that honey hole and now there's two or three guys in there. And, you know, it gets to, it really does get to be where it's, 
really hard to have success on public land continuously. And I feel like when you are trying to grow the sport and when you are trying to, to, you know, develop someone and get someone to really be passionate about being a hunter and, and being an outdoors person, um, I feel like that's, that's where it's really important that people also embrace the places that are managed. You know, I feel like there's, I feel like there's starting to be this line drawn between, you know, and I see it in my comments, they'll say like, you know, was this public land or not, you know? And it's like, Hey, I, I hunted out of a truck and slept in, you know, slept on the ground and hunted public land for a long, long time. But I also, as I was doing that, I would venture out and knock on doors and knock on doors. And eventually I would, even though I was went out to Nebraska and was hunting turkeys on public land at first, I saw a bunch of turkeys out in this field that I realized was owned by a farmer. And I knocked on the door enough times to where I got permission and I got to go there, you know, and, and I feel like it's important for people to understand that, you know, that having those managed places as well, um, especially for like, you know, my wife or my son, you know, I took them places where I knew they'd have an awesome experience and also have success. You know, it's, I felt like that was important. You know, I took them, I took them first, uh, to, you know, on a turkey hunt where I knew they'd see turkeys. I knew they'd have a shot. Um, it was on one of my friends, you know, private land. And then I booked a, a hog hunt, you know, six months later with an outfitter in Florida. And we went down and went to Disney World for a day and then went out and hunted hogs for a few days. And they saw a lot of hogs. They they had success, you know, and I feel like that was really important to them, not just having a hunger for what we do, but also like being able to feed it. And as that's happened, naturally, you will get to the point where you're like, okay, I've seen this place a bunch of times. I want to, I want to try a different challenge. You know, let's, let's just venture off somewhere and, and, you know, and go out with a bivy and, and kind of go out and do this. I think that's a natural development. And I think it's important that our community realizes there's a lot of people that started on public and work their way into private. And there's a lot of people that had done a lot of sacrifices to buy their own private land and, and make those spots. And some of those people, after they've hunted them for a long time, um, myself included, you start to then say, okay, I've, I've kind of done this enough. I'm going to bring, I'm going to ask a friend to come. I'm going to bring someone else to come. And you bring those people in there that just, help spread a good word about a community. And I think all of it is a very, very important part of this ecosystem. You know, I look at someone like Joe Rogan or I look at someone like Jocko, you know, those guys don't have weeks and weeks to be able to be away from their jobs and their commitments and their families who aren't really hunting people. So, if you can get those people away for four or five days, 
it's honestly better for everyone that they go somewhere where they're going to have success in four or five days and they're going to enjoy hunting and have they probably had the the most awesome experience it could ever be yeah they did but you know what they're going to be talking positively about it and they're going to be doing a lot of good things for our community and they're going to want to do it again next year you know i think and over time they may say hey i want to do a, a backcountry hunt you know i'm i'm to the point now where i really don't care if i have success i want to do something where it's just a different challenge and then they'll gravitate towards that so i just want to make sure that message is out there that that people realize our community is an ecosystem right now there's new people coming in that have the ability to to really feed this and help spread the the positive word but we need to make sure we're not drawing lines because anytime that happens in any type of sport or any type of community as soon as a line's drawn and there's sides taken it just obviously becomes a divide and we can't afford that that's so true, John. Yeah, I'm glad you went in depth on that subject. And I didn't mean to be divisive in the way I said it. Like, I've got to watch no, myself, too, because, like, um, I'm, I'm such so my niche is the podcast. Like, everybody kind of finds their niche. And, and, and mine is definitely the, the blue collar, you know, I hunt, majority of my hunts are all public land, you know, and it, it's like the new age of it, right? There's a lot more guys out there, but it's the information day and age where you can find podcasts like yours to dive deep down the rabbit hole of improving your archery game there's you know there's there's so much information out there about doing in the research and 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 figuring out public land areas and so that's a lot of what i preach but i try really hard to to dive deep down the subject of public versus private that that private is just access to good land with less hunters that's all i'm trying to find out on public land and you're right like guys <laughs> Like um, we we don't all have the the benefit of time, and I've structured my life where I get a lot of time to to scout and to to go to these places, and then time on the hunt, and and I can afford to eat a tag here or there because you know one of these western states is going to pay off. I may you know I'm going to hit pay dirt somewhere, you know, and so I preach a lot of that. But you're right, we can't like have these things that divide us, and and public land or private land, the, those animals like. They're switched on no matter where you're hunting. They're wild animals, and if you think it's going to be – it's going to be the toughest challenge you ever take on no matter where you go. But you're right in a limited amount of time, like sometimes to, to pay a little access fee or to pay an outfitter that's done the research and done the scouting and to go there and to just get in the action, get in the bow hunting action for five days, like – I'm just trying to create that five days. I just might have to put more time and effort, and I probably spend just as much money in gas, in in food, in multiple trips trying to do how I'm doing. But I think you're right. We all got to stick together, and bow hunting is bow hunting, and that that thrilling excitement you get. And and if I have the opportunity to go on a on a private land lease or to hunt private ground that's good, or to you know, and like um. Like like when I go to to Hawaii, I hunt a lot of private land over there. I've got a couple buddies and and go out there and hunt on their ground, and it's really good axis hunting, you know. And it it wouldn't be nearly that easy to harvest an axis deer hunting that public. But I also can't spend a month out on Hawaii trying to harvest an axis deer, you know. And so like I get that that good spot to hunt. But man, you're so right. We got to stick together, and we got to stop like. Uh, 
uh, uh, saying private or public or putting a, a you know a, a bigger trophy status on one versus the other or being against the other side because we're all together in this. We're all just bow hunters trying to grow the sport so we have a voice. Yeah, yeah. I was I was told uh, years ago from someone I worked with. You know, we were kind of saw this one person that was just always sending in just stacks of trophy photos, you know, and they made the comment, you know, time and money, time and money. And yeah, it's a hundred percent. That's a fair comment. You know, some people that are willing to pay for these private land hunts, they don't have the time, uh, but they love hunting and they're, they're willing to pay the money to have those experiences. But I do want to make sure I encourage people out there to, Make sure, you know, you do still go and knock on doors and and try to try to get on to some of those private land places. And I know it's hard, but it's honestly look at it as a hunt. You're hunting property and you'll learn to be a very creative person to get access. And it'll also take work and effort, no different than you know, having to go an extra five miles in so that you're not seeing someone. You know, I remember when I got my first piece of property that I had permission on, I had to go and help every time the farmer cut hay bales, I had to go out there and freaking sling those suckers in a barn. And there were times where he'd have to move cows around and I'd have to mess around. And, you know, I put in a lot of work in order to have like three tree stand spots on this guy's place. You know, he was a farmer that was smart. He, he let people work to, in order to have their own little, you know, place where they could have their tree stands. And, and I put in X amount of work and I got to have three tree stands. And funny enough, I remember, uh, I was, I was trying to, I was given lessons to, uh, Doug Peterson and Brett Favre and, and Wesley Walls. And they wanted, it was a bye week and they wanted to, to go out on a deer hunt. And because we were all in Wisconsin, they had resident tags. So I had to go up to this farmer and like literally beg and plead and put in extra work in order to put Brett Favre and Doug Peterson and Wesley Walls in my stands, you know. But it's like one of those things where learning how to put in the effort to like get those permissions on those spots. That's also fun. I mean, that's also really cool. And also, you know, the very first piece of property I ever bought, I was living in town. I was working at Matthews. I was, a, I was a sales rep making a pretty dang good living, but I bought a freaking moped off of, out of the classified section for $160. And even though I was, you know, one of our top sales guys, I was driving a moped for six months of the year to work that I paid 160 bucks for. And I could drive to, from my house to work and back for a full month of work for $2.10 worth of gas. <laughs> and I did that because I wanted to also save up money to buy a piece of property. And the first piece of property I bought was 3.1 acres. 
and I bought this 3.1 acre piece of property that had like no access to it other than a four wheeler trail that was an easement. It was literally this triangle that you couldn't build in, but it was like about a hundred yards from a piece of public ground and it was in between two houses and I had seen some deer there and it was just a grown up thicket. But you know what? I bought that land. I kind of I cut some trails so that the deer would come out of the public land and go through this place that would go between the two houses and have where the deer would have their privacy. And and I put a tree stand in the only tree that was there. And I had to have a specific I always had to have a northwest wind only to hunt it so that when I got my stand, the people's house would be straight at my back and the deer would go between me and the other house that was in front of me. And you know, I shot a Pope and young deer on that piece of property. And, and then the, you know, I continued to drive my moped and, you know, as I'd win a tournament, I'd put the money away. And then eventually I was able to buy a 10 acre piece of property and, you know, sold my 3.1 acres and bought a 10 acre piece of property and shot two Pope and young deer off a 10 acre piece of property. And then after another four or five years, I was able to buy a 40 acre piece and not to mention these pieces of property that I bought were all about being around these farmers, putting in work, them getting to like me, them knowing like this kid's doing all this because he wants to have his own piece of property. And I'd tell him like, you know, someday I just, you know, I'd love, I have three acres, man, I'd love to, I'd love to have 10. And then eventually guys like, Hey, you know, I'll sell you 10 acres really, really, you know, and then you kind of have that for a while. And then you realize, man, I want 40. And all this is like part of this process of just continually putting in the work and compounding these things to where, you know, I look back, I was 18 years old. And while I was 19, shooting tournaments, working for Matthews, driving a freaking moped to work. Oh, and by the way, my car was a 1983 Pontiac mini uh, station wagon that I bought from an old man out of a classified section had like brown sofa upholstery inside of it. But you know what? My fishing rods fit on the roof when I screwed some some hooks into my roof so I could put my fishing rods in there. And yeah, I got 30 miles of the gallon, that little sucker. So that was all the stuff that I was doing so that I could hunt and fish and, and like continue to build on properties. And I think that people should, should really strive to still do that. It's work, but it was fun. And when you shoot a deer on a three acre piece of property that is drinking out of a, a water tank that you, you know, a little kiddie pool that you bought at Walmart and put the water there and, and walk buckets of water out there and filled it up every day because, there was food all around you and there was cover all around you, but there wasn't any water. So if I had the water and I sat on this kiddie pool long enough, I'd be able to shoot a deer. And when that happened, like the reward of that is pretty amazing, you know, and, and I still have that, I still have that deer. And when people come in and they see like that deer compared to the Iowa deer I have on the wall, they're like, man, when did you shoot that one? I'm like, I love that buck. You know? Yeah. It was 125 inches, but 
I freaking hauled water in for a whole summer into that kiddie pool so that I could try to get a buck to come and drink water out of that tank so I could have my shot on my three acres. You know what I mean? Man, I love that, John. That's such a great story. So yeah, like just the the blue collar average come up of of you having a dream and and making sacrifices and working towards it. And and you make a really good point that I've never really talked about or stressed on the podcast. But you're right; it's a skill or an art to get permission, you know. And and especially like you know coming up whitetail hunting, it was necessary for you just to have a place to hunt. But out here west, it's the same thing, and and it's a skill and an art, and you just get like like some guys are good at it but it's just a matter of putting in the effort like you say and you have the same gratitude the same sense of hard work and and you put the same amount of time and effort into killing that 125 inch whitetail as I did my first 140 inch muley on public ground you know like like it's tough and it's tough to get that permission and I, I'm with you. Anytime you can get in with these ranchers, these farmers, you can knock on doors and just being genuine and authentic. And, you know, like I've got a great bear spot here in my home valley, you know, a bunch of logged off country. And it's, you know, a buddy that runs a ranch or not even really a buddy of mine, but a guy I met. And I offered to re-roof a little shed roof for him and took care of that. And you just do little things and pretty soon you got permission in there, you know, and and out west here, a lot of times, just getting permission to access public lands. You know, I know this this late season spot I'm in, you know, I've seen a lot of muley bucks, but you just can't get to them from the National Forest accesses. They're, they're too far, too many canyons. But boy, if you can get permission on one of these lower ranches and get access, um, you're in the money. And then also, out here west... Like looking into our state programs for uh, public or for private land access. Like we've got a program here in Montana that's our block management, where there's millions of acres that are put in block management. That it just takes getting the book, reading through some of the properties you have to sign up for. Some of them you have to go meet the guy. And I found such good hunting on this block management, you know. And it's a resource that that guys aren't tapping into. And also like Idaho, I chased a bull this year on access. Yes property which is the same type of program so you know you're, you're right in this hunting game to get ourselves opportunity and chances and, and to get ourselves close encounters with bow hunting like like we really have to use this resource of trying to get access to these private lands through those programs knocking on doors offering your services and just being a good human being and as you get to know these ranchers just like you buying your properties as an average guy they almost want to help you out and want to see you succeed and do better too as you make friends with them check in and have coffee and like you say it is work. It's just as much work, you know, getting one of those places, studying up on one of those places as it is studying up on a on a public land piece and hunting that. So I think you bring up a really good point, John. Yeah, you could use the off season, like I said, to hunt property, you know, use the off season to to fine tune your skills, you know, maybe with the target bow and 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 use it as a time to to hunt properties and 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 make those relationships. You know, I. uh I've 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 solidified a lot of permission on properties by capitalizing on Black Friday sales. I can tell you that, you know, <laughs> I've I've gone to Black Friday stuff literally to shop for uh, people that have given me permission on places. Um, but you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work and it doesn't you know, that's that's kind of part of the fun and also makes a good story. Um Brian, do you know, uh, I'm sure you do, do you know Darren Cooper? 
Yeah, uh, Double D, right, back in the yeah. day? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, I remember. Yep, so Darren and I, um, we went and did a, a DIY public land uh, elk hunt in Idaho, and this was the years that the, the, the first year that the wolves really hit hard. Um, so it was tough. I mean, I saw more wolves than elk. It was, it was really tough. And I don't think they were open yet to hunt either. They were just there. And so we were really frustrated. We were way up there putting on miles. You know, we were probably like four or five days into the hunt, had never even encountered an elk. We saw, I think we saw some tracks maybe, uh, but we're, a little bit banged up and stuff from trying to get back there. We had some snow come in and stuff. And we, uh, two morning, I think two days in a row, we ended up driving into town to go to like this little cafe to get something to eat. And both times that we drove in, we looked and we saw this little herd of elk out by this pivot. And there was a freaking nice bull out there, you know, just like, they were in the middle of this pivot and we saw this irrigation ditch that led out there and we're sitting there saying, dude, I can, we can totally put a stock on this sucker, like wait from the bed down, hit that irrigation ditch. We can crawl into the pivot. Like, you know, so we were in town and I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to this waitress, see if I can figure out whose property that is. So started talking to the waitress and said, you know, hey, out here on out of town, you know, where you go this way and that way, there's kind of a big alfalfa field out there. And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, do you know who owns that? And she said, yeah, um, it's so-and-so. And I said, oh, okay. And I, she goes, their home ranch is, you know, out here, I'll draw you a map. So she draws us a map to the home ranch. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, all right, you know, let's, let's, this is a long shot, but let's do it. So we drive out there, and as we're there, like three semi, three empty semis are all sitting there. Like one's backed up to the cattle ramp, and as we're like pulling up, here's a bunch of cowboys wrangling up their cows for the for the fall. They're literally bringing them down out of the valley, and they're and they're within like a quarter mile, like bringing them in. So. Um, you know, I spent, I spent several years on my family's ranch and stuff. So I just said, all right, let's get out there and help these guys. And freaking, I kind of ran out there and I could see the lead cowboy, you know, he looked like the, you know, he looked like Kevin Costner and Yellowstone, right. You know, and, <laughs> and I ride up there and I said, I go, you need a hand. And he goes, yeah, I go, where's the hot shot? You know? And he said, oh, there's one in my truck over there. He goes, yeah, hit that hit that ramp up there. So I went there and, you know, we're freaking, I don't know how many it was, but it was three semis full of cattle. And this guy's, you know, there's cows trying to spit back out and everything. And, and we're, you know, we're me and me and Darren are, you know, whipping these things and hot shotting them and getting them all stuffed in here. And, you know, I'm climbing up in this, uh, semi truck and swinging across the rafters and trying to stack calves, you know, sideways like cordwood in there and getting them all packed in and you know this guy's kind of giving me lessons like good job on that one and he's like you know get this white face one pull him out you know he's the neighbors and so we're doing all this and i'm just looking at darren like winking like oh baby you know this worked out perfect and uh we finally what's funny is the finally the last cow we were trying to jam in there and darren goes give me that hot shot 
and he freaking stuffs it in there but gets like behind the calf and just lights him up to try to kick, cram him in there and this calf just freaking mule kicks Darren right <laughs> square in the chest and I swear it almost stopped his heart he had this huge freaking bruise like Superman just right between his tits and uh, he's like sitting there and I could tell the the cowboys because like I said it was the last cow so everybody saw that one they, they were just kind of like they were getting a laugh out of it you know so this took several hours, and again, this is obviously work you're putting in in the middle of your hunt. We're on vacation. You know, it's not like we have hours to spare when you've got five days vacation from work and you're out west. You know, so uh, this old this old wrangler comes walking up to us on his horse, and he goes, he goes, thanks, boys. He goes, I really appreciate that. Needed a help, and I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, and. Uh, he goes, well, he said, I suppose you're here for that elk out there down the road at that pivot. And I said, yes, sir. Uh, I was wondering if maybe you could just give a couple bow hunters a chance to just make one stalk out there and crawl down that ditch and see if we can get a shot at that bull. And he just said, I'd love to say yes, but someone's already came and paid me to have a shot at that bull during gun season <laughs> oh no and i just said all right well i really appreciate you think you know giving us a chance and yeah. then we walked away and i looked at darren and i'm like he knew the whole time what we were there for. <laughs> oh, that's so funny so you know that's Hey, there's two lessons from that. One, you win some, you lose some. Two, hats off to the guy that came and got permission before the cows needed wrangling. Good for you, and good for you for having some cash in your pocket and beating us to it, you uh, sucker. You know? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I was waiting for you guys to crawl out that ditch and shoot that bull and get permission. That's great. Um, no, we yeah. got, uh, got a hoof to the chest for that one. That was it. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't always win, do you? Like you say, he knew the whole time as you guys were helping out, too. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He knew the whole time. He's like, I'm just going to milk this until those guys finally ask me. I'm just going to keep. And I just I kept trying to be polite, just putting in the work, putting in the work. And then I was going to come at him from the from the humble pie side. Yep. That old that old farmer knew that freaking routine and played it well. So, you know, when you just thought you were. Yeah, you just thought you were in the whole time, too, as you're helping with the cattle and you're part of their – and he's giving you tips and advice and you guys are working together. Like all of a sudden you built this relationship in a few hours where you just know he's going to let you go out there to get that bull. You know, you're working in camo. He knows why you're there. You know why you're there. And then it doesn't work out in the end. That's great. Oh, yeah. Yep. The whole time I was winking at Darren, just like, oh, yeah, we got this, man. This guy needed us here. We're freaking getting these cows in. Got that white face one sorted out for his neighbor. Like we're in the chips right now and, and denied. Oh man. Um, well, this is great. This is exactly what I expected. Time's flying by, John. So I gotta just hit you with some like hot fire archery topics and just let you go for a little bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, I guess we'll start with like out out west. I get so many shots, like. More than half of my shots come from a kneeling position. So a kneeling position, it just seems like you don't quite have your core engaged as much. So 
I guess it's a, a, a two-part question of, of how a guy can improve his, his kneeling shooting, and then is it better to sit on your feet, or is it better to rise up on your knees, or what's a better position to shoot out of? Well, the the answer to that question is all about the terrain that's in front of you. Obviously, if you're you know if you're in some CRP grass and stuff, you're probably gonna have to get as high as you can, you know. And the other thing too is me being six five, I can sit back on my heels and I'm still taller than most guys, fully up on their knees. You know what I mean? So, yes. um, yeah, I try to, I really try to just pretend like you know, my knees are in my shoes, so to speak. And, and, uh, you know, I do lean back and kind of sit back on my heels if I can, it's not always the case, but one of the things that really helps with that is a technique that I, that I really had to learn for when I competed a lot in windy conditions. And that is just to really start to learn commitment to the shot and learning how to make a surprise shot happen rapidly. Um, and this is something that is important when you're shooting off your knees, when you're shooting in wind, when you're shooting, um, a deer that's maybe passing or not necessarily a deer, but some, an animal that's passing by a limited shooting window, um, you know, or a place where you have a clear, lane for your arrow to thread through or if something is you know slightly moving and you know this is just it's commitment to the shop and and understanding preload on your trigger you know you have to I, I really try to have times where I'm practicing getting my finger on my trigger to the point where once I'm starting my pull, it's almost it's going. So it's almost like, you know, if you if you drive a manual transmission, if you really learn your clutch well enough, you can literally have that clutch within a half an inch of when it's going to be wanting to go once you give it gas. Right. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you get in a car for the first time. You haven't driven it much, you know, you might realize, okay, my friction point is freaking three quarters of the way up from the pedal. So I really don't need to smash it all the way to the ground every time to shift. You know, I can press this thing down a third and I'm able to, to go through my shifting. The same's true with your trigger. There comes a point where you really want to get so good with your trigger that you really understand your preload and get to the point where you're at your friction point and any pulling movement that you're doing past that is going to activate that shot. And this is important anytime where you have movement, you know, whether it's movement in your sight or movement on the target, because you want to be able to commit to that shot and make it happen fast because the reality is the longer you sit there and try to aim in the wind you're just going to you're going to just start collapsing your technique you know you're going to start your shoulders are going to start coming up and you're just you're aiming you're being static you're not being dynamic and the same's true when you're shooting off your knees or if you're shooting off your butt or any type of awkward position your ability to be steady is going to be like for these brief little fragments of a second and to be able to to draw back and anchor and get into that peep sight 
and you know you can feel that that pin like you're kind of getting it there and you know you're you're within the kill zone you're not perfectly steady but you're there then understanding that preload of just getting to that friction point on your trigger and then as soon as that pin stabilizes enough where you need it to you're pulling through that shot you know to to really to, to activate it and i think if people there's a couple things one people have to shoot enough to really understand that and like for me i've shot so many you know i don't even know how many shots i've shot in my lifetime it's hard to know but like if someone if someone gives me their release the first thing i do is cock it put my finger on it and i'm like feeling it just to feel you know how much travel does this have what kind of pressure do i need before this thing's ready to fire because I don't want to sit there and waste like seven or eight seconds taking all the slack and slop out of a trigger. I really want to know, okay, how much do I need to, to be 80 to 90% there so that my movement to activate this shot is minimal, but also my timing to activate my shot is much more efficient. So I think shot trainers or having a piece of D-loop material to where you have that tied off at like your draw length and you just work with your familiarity of your trigger, how you seat your thumb on the trigger and how much pull is needed to activate that. That's one of the things that a lot of people really miss out on when they, you know, I, I call them like placebo people. They're people that just, they, they change their spring tension so much. They change their trigger shoe. They change their release. Yep. It's like they, and they're doing that because a lot of people, when they change a release, it helps them get away from like their target panic for a short period of time. Yep. You know, they're, they're literally like the guy that just continually buys a new driver every week because, once he plays with the driver very long, he starts slicing with it again, you know, and, and my dad, my dad had a saying one time, uh, you know, I, I think I, I grabbed one of his drivers or I think one of my buddies grabbed one of his drivers out of a bag and he swung it and just hit this longest, straightest shot he's ever hit. And he said, he's like, he's like, man, can I hit that driver straight? My dad looked at him. He said, well, don't ever buy one then. Because <laughs> he kind of knew that the guy was the only way that person was going to hit a, something straight is if he was just using something different all the time because he overthought everything. But I think with triggers, you really do need to get to the point where you accept the fact that maybe you have target panic or target anticipation and you need to work through that. So what are the how do i get through that do i need a do i need a tension based release do i need a hinge release like what do i need to do to to get through that but then once you've kind of made that decision then it's okay now i need to commit to this to where i'm shooting it enough and i'm not like changing the tension changing the thumb peg you know i'm just doing this so much that i can actually start to build a subconscious rhythm to where I know where my I know where my friction point is. I you know what I mean. I know I know this clutch so well that I can literally do this right-handed, left-handed in my sleep, whatever. But if you're just jumping in a new car all the time, then you're 
wasting a lot of time on that clutch pedal trying to figure out like when's it going to go when's it going to go when's it going to go so learning your trigger well enough and learning how to commit to that shot and make activation happen with a very very efficient part of time on a timeline that is one of the best ways to shoot well from unnatural positions Man, that's um, that's so in depth and that's so next level. Uh, learning your release like that, and there's so many great nuggets of information there in what you stated. Like, um, you know, like uh, committing to your shot, committing to that execution that's correct every time because you talk about being in bad positions being in windy and, and the, the fact of the matter is is your pin never aims on an animal like it does on a target like buck fever is real and and you have to be okay with a little movement and i like how you how you learn your release to make your shot go quickly but you didn't punch it off and it like even after i learned to shoot correctly it took me a while to commit to that shot that shooting in the wind you know, the right answer is to never punch your trigger. The right answer is to have a uh, correct execution and believe in it wholeheartedly when you're walking around out there. But I love how you talk about learning your release, like the clutch of a, of a car. And, and you talked about release aids. I saw on your website that, that you sell a release aid with a handle on it, but yeah, just even D loop material. And just at night, even when you're not shooting, learning that release and learning how to preload that release where that shot breaks in a quick amount of time because you, you're right you don't like you talked about static and dynamic you don't have time to just be static and try to aim that thing for 10 seconds when the wind's blowing you around you need to like like you stated commit to your shot uh, load up on that trigger and know that shot's going to break within the next couple seconds man there's so much great information out there and i I just uh, – you have such a comprehensive resource for information through your podcast and through your website uh, about executing correctly, like moving to these – realizing that to take your archery to the next level, that, that you have to – Get a little bit worse before you get better and commit to shooting the correct way, you know, and, and I see that you've got back tensions and then you've got thumbs and, and hinges, but learning to shoot that correct way, I just wish I would have had that resource when I went through all my bad target panic days and had to learn this, you know, by hanging out at bow shops and, and through buddies and, and good, you know, shooters indoor and outdoor and things of that nature. And, and thank God I was able to figure it out. But what a great resource you have to teach guys how to shoot the right way and take their archery to the next level, man. It's just awesome. Well, one of the things I've always told people is you really need to learn from those who do or those who have done. And I've always struggled learning something from someone who just studied a subject versus someone that's an expert in the subject. And you know, there's the hard part about our our world right now is that information is so easy to get, but there's a lot of people that they want to be that person that has information and some of the information they give is poor, some of the information is regurgitated and it gets difficult to to kind of know, but one of the filters that I continually use is has this person done this or experienced this or is this just something he's teaching because he's read every article that's out there um, 
honestly, most of what I do good is just things that I sucked at. And, you know, I had, I shot a wrist strap. I had target panic multiple times through my, through my career, um, different stages of it. I've taken just stupid, uh, equipment setups to tournaments that I thought looked cool or, you know, looked really like super target sophisticated and then realized like there's so much shit going on right now. Like I don't even know what I'm doing and you just start to break down. And then it's kind of like, I look at it a couple different ways. I, I look at it. I remember talking to someone that hunted with Almer one time and I was kind of saying like, how much stuff does he pack? And he's just like, Oh, he doesn't pack a lot of stuff. You know, he's like freaking bottle of water in each pocket, like going out. And I was just thinking, Oh, well maybe that's just like where he's hunting. He doesn't have to be that far from his car or whatever. I don't know. But then, but then once I've started really hanging around with, um, which I'm fortunate to be able to hanging around with, a lot of spec ops guys that had careers on teams, you know, SEALs or, um, you know, like Delta guys or Rangers or whatever it is, you continually hear these stories about like their first deployments or their first times that they went out, like how much shit they would take. And then by the time they're 10 or 15 years in, they're just like, this is the basics of what I need. Um, this other stuff actually makes me more inefficient rather than efficient. Will it help me in this one exact specific scenario? Yes, it would. But there's also 99 other scenarios to where it could actually restrict me. So this is kind of my nuts and bolts of what's important. And the longer I've been in archery and the more mistakes I've made, the more I've started to just – simplify down and simplify down and simplify down to where I'm going to the woods with things that 90% of the time I need um, and 100% of the time I can count on. That That's it. You know, to some of these things that look cool, um, that are excessive, give you one extra thing to think about. I mean, there's there's starting to become like a lot of gimmicks and it's, it's unfortunate because some of them look cool. Some people just want to, they're bored and they want to buy something else for their, for their bow. But simplicity and technique is speed in the field and simplicity in your equipment is a hundred percent trustworthy in the field as well um the more stuff you have that can come loose or go wrong or wear you out or fatigue you down um or the more processes you have in your shot routine just the more stuff that you have to think about and the reality is your cpu is only so high and you know it's a lot like if on your iPhone, you know, you've got a bunch of different apps, you know, if you've got all these freaking apps open, the reality is you can only look at one at a time. The other ones are running in the background. So when I look at like, you know, going on a spot in stock, I need to be able to assess my target, 
decide my route. I have to be able to continually monitor that route as I'm maneuvering. But then I also need to be able to, once it's time for that shot, to be able to go through a very simple shot process that's simplified, it's compact, and in the end, th those five simple things help me make a shot that ends up being a 10, right? So if all of a sudden you start adding in all these other things to your shot routine, the checklist becomes too long and you're starting to give yourself way more time for breakdowns. So I've just learned over time as much as I've thought some techniques and some gadgets are cool and might look neat or whatever, the reality is there's very, very fundamental basics to certain elements of sport that make you have 100% success if you just execute the simple basics. If you put those other things in there, could they maybe make you a little bit better, a little bit better possibly? But like you said, being able to compute all those things in a controlled environment where all you are is in your range looking at a target at 20 yards and, you know, maybe you got some music in the background and that's all that's going on. You're not worried about um, is that can the deer can, are their eyes looking at me? Can they hear this movement I'm about to make? What are the freaking does doing? Are they looking at me? I can move my head a little bit and figure that part out. Um, okay, what is the wind doing? Do I need to aim off on this? I better confirm that range because there's a piece of grass blowing in front of that sucker, and I need to make sure I'm actually hitting the, the buck's back and not the piece of grass. I mean, you start factoring in all those little things too, and you realize, man, the more simplistic I can have my execution list to be – the more successful I'm going to be in the highest percentage of scenarios. I mean, that's, that's really what I found from my experience. And it's what I, it's really what I try to teach in the nicest way possible without, you know, being, I guess, you know, negative towards some of the other people that are putting kind of gimmicks out there, I guess. Yeah, so um, you're right. We have to choose our role models carefully. You want uh, you you want guys that uh, have been there and done it before, that have learned through their own experiences. But man, that is so great! Like simplifying your shooting process. Like as you talk about it, it's something I've done over the years without even really thinking about it. As I really try to focus on you know the most in important three steps for me, you know, is like to to you know you know mine is to to put the pin on the animal where I want it. You know, I I do so much better to just let that pin float where I want it than getting it right to the spot and making the shot go. And so, like, as I draw back, I tell myself to anchor, put the pin where I want it, and then the most important one for me is to pull, pull, pull. And I just – that commitment to that shot, to never making that shot go, and then I make my best shot on animal. And this is so important what you're talking about, John, because you're talking about taking all these skills you develop and – all these details you're talking about, they're important in your shot process, but there's a time and a place to work on it. So you don't want to be telling yourself 10 steps when you're trying to shoot at a buck. But I love how you simplify your process of your shooting, but then you talk about paying attention to the details, you know, about the wind and aiming off, the blade of grass, waiting for the right opportunity, the right angle on that animal. You know, like there's 
there's all these details, like the devil's in the details, and you have to pay attention to all this, and it's almost like a, a car wreck when you get done, like trying to remember it and go through it. But the more you do it, the better you get, but the more you can be in control of that situation. And and I, like even though I've been doing it for years and arrowed a lot of animals, I still walk through the woods telling myself I'm going to execute correctly. Every time I go to bend my limbs back, I tell myself to execute correctly because – if I have a lapse in any of my shooting and make that shot go, like you can never have that shot back, you know? And so like, I still have to walk myself through that process. I still do a lot of visualizing. I still like you're talking practice with string loops and your release and learning that I can close my eyes at night and shoot a few more arrows just, you know, uh, with that string loop or whatever. But it, it's so important to simplify that process down and have control over that moment and not lose your mind. Just get your pin on that animal and punch it off. It's it's so tough to transfer those skills from the target to the field because you get one shot in the field to make it happen. You know, I guess not much different than than tournaments in that where you got to make 30 perfect shots. But man, it sure seems like a tough transition. And I've seen guys struggle with it that are great archers, but they get in the field and just lose their mind when shooting at an animal. And I think that's common. And I think like like that simplifying your process and control of your shot is just so important to being consistently successful and making your best shot out there. Yeah, and I don't think it's I don't think it's super common. I think it's to be expected. <laughs> you know, I I think I think you need to you need to realize, you know, I'm going to be a different person when it's like the moment of glory. You know, the reality is I'm going to be I'm I'm I probably aren't going to have all my my freaking ducks in a row. You know, I might be a little bit of a basket case, but given that scenario, what is most important? And, and you said it, um, talking to yourself about what type of shot you're going to make is so valuable. Um, visualization is one of the best tools that I've used to make a good shot. You know, there's times where I'm in a moment, I see a, you know, man, this buck's freaking big. Uh, you know, he's coming in, I'm trying to let things develop, you know, what if he comes within range? And then all of a sudden you start to realize, okay, this is going to happen. And then sometimes you find yourself going down that rabbit hole of, you know, I wonder what this, you know, is this thing going to be the biggest buck I ever shot? And, you know, man, I can't wait. You know, if I pull into camp with this, all the other guys are going to crap themselves or, you know, this is the buck everyone else is after. And he's freaking in front of me. This is hilarious. Like, as soon as you've kind of see yourself going down that route that's when you have to just be like wait 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 what shot am i going to make on this and just be like okay here's the scenario he's going to come in i'm going to wait for him to get there i'm going to confirm that range make sure that range is good i'm going to position myself you know to where i'm not shooting across my body i'm going to position myself to where you know my feet or my knees are pointing the right way you know i'm just going to draw back i I like that spot on this buck. That's the spot right there, right in that pocket. I'm going to aim at that that little white shadow that he's got right there. And I'm just going to feel that trigger just freaking building and building and building. And I'm just going to see that shot tick-tock right into there. And sometimes if you focus on the details of of that visualization to that point, all of a sudden you realize you've already made that shot 
and that animal's down and you're like, holy, you know, holy crap. It's exact, you know, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. That's exactly what I did. Um, you have to be able to do that. And visualizing that shot all the time is so important. Um, I remember a couple years ago, uh, Joe Rogan went on a hunt, uh, and he was going on an elk hunt and he was kind of saying like, I've got cameras behind me. I really, you know, I don't want to make a poor shot that everyone's going to see and stuff. And I just said, Hey dude, you're going to make a perfect shot. I'm like, here's, here's where you're going to want to shoot, you know? And, and he kind of sent me a few pictures of elk. He's like, where would I shoot this one? I just, you know, screenshot it, drop a little dot right there. Okay. What about this one right there? What about this one right there? And I was just like, golden triangle, dude. Here's the golden triangle. Here's your pin. Here's the golden triangle. Here's your pin. And then next thing I know, I get this text from him, and it's like the elk on the ground, and there's like lung bubbles coming out, right? And he's just literally walking up for the first time, and he's just like, freaking golden triangle, you know, <laughs> you know, freaking put it right where Dudley said, you know, just visualize that shot, visualize that shot, and. He said that he had a really small lane to shoot through, and he said he literally saw that golden triangle through that little hole in the brush, and he said he just stared at that exact those little dots where I was, you know, showing him, dude, shoot him here, shoot him here, shoot him here, and all those visualization tools over the couple weeks of him prepping to go on that hunt, all of a sudden his brain's just like, oh, okay, there's the animal, and it, it, you know, his mind probably just said that's the dot, like. If John was going to draw a dot, that's the dot. And he freaking put the arrow right there and it just blew through it when a couple, you know, couple yards freaking tipped over dead. And he's just like, holy cow. And, it, you know, visualization is definitely something that you have to credit for being able to execute like that in those types of moments. Yeah, that's um it's so powerful. Like, uh, it, there's nothing uh, that that excites me more. There's nothing more satisfying than executing correctly and making that perfect shot. And those elk, um, elk. You know, I spent my whole life hunting them. They're such a tough animal. And so people think, well, they got a big vitals. You know, that elk are big. You know, but you have to, like, I almost have to sit on my shot more so on elk because you got to put it in the perfect place. You know, lungs, heart, or liver, they don't die. You know. You have to make a perfect shot on them. And so I almost make a more precise shot on an elk than I do any other animal out there. I know I have to pick that spot and, like you say, put it in that golden triangle and zip right through him, you know. And then and then he's going to die within a couple hundred yards. But, um, man, that, that visualization, visualizing that shot like that, man, that's there's just nothing better than when you can execute correctly like that. And um, I, I think it is. It's just a mindset and you feel like you've been there before when you visualized it. Um, it's just so important, man. It's um, it's such great information to guys to have out there to transfer their skills into shooting, getting that one shot at that animal they've worked all year for. Oh yeah, no question. It's uh, it all factors in, and you know, there's there's no better feeling than than having it all come together. Uh, there's no doubt, and honestly, there's no probably worse feeling than when you blow it, you know, and oh, it's the, worst. the reality is, you know, people see my successes, but I, I do try to do a good job of also talking about my failures and it, it does happen. It doesn't matter how many animals I've, I've shot and, 
you know, maybe how many cool shots I might have made. It, it really doesn't matter. Um, you know, I lost a bull this year that still still baffles me on how. You know, we, I was we were actually uh, in the process of like quartering out uh, Jocko's bull, and I kind of heard something, and I turned around. And I see these two cows, you know, we were literally down on the ground working quietly on this bull. And I turn around, I see these two cows just coming through the, the tall, you know, like willows and buck brush. And they go past me and, and right behind them, I look and I could just see the, the whale tails just coming through. And they were dead quiet. They weren't talking. It was a, a big herd bull with a couple cows. And I just literally grabbed my bow and kind of shuffled into position. I ranged this tree. It was like 34 yards. I freaking drew back, and the bull literally just stepped right in front of that freaking tree. I just ranged, and you know, I, I put my 30-yard pin like right on his heart and shot and saw that arrow just, you know, when it hit, I looked at those guys, and I'm like, shot his heart out. And the bull went about 150 yards and you know i could see a little bit of leaking coming out of the armpit and just started walking and went on one of those bull walks and you know it was one of those deals where we tracked and found a bed and found another bed and found another bed and found where another bull had charged into that last bed of blood and then the two elk ran off together and you know it was just one of those things where it's like Oh my God, you know, 30 yard shot, you know, 30 yard shot. And I, you know, would have swore I shot it, shot it perfectly in the heart. But the reality is there's ups and there's downs. I mean, you know, I've, I don't think there is anything I could have done different, but the truth is I didn't do something right. And no matter how many elk I've shot in my lifetime, you can still miss one that's that close. And like you said, they're freaking tough. You know, I might have I might have shot just behind the heart and maybe hit one lung. But, you know, I I killed a whitetail. Uh, I killed a whitetail a week and a half ago uh, in Oklahoma. And when I walked up to it, I was you know, I kind of picked its horns up and I was looking at it and just really appreciating it. And I kind of just started running my hand down this buck, you know, kind of from his neck all the way down his side. And I was just like, wow, so thankful for this deer. And as I'm like stroking it, I can feel a bump like right. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like right perfectly, like in the shoulder, like halfway up the body, I'm talking like golden triangle type area. And so I started feeling and I said, man, it feels like there's a broadhead in here. And so I, we took a knife and we cut and sure enough, there's a tip of an old satellite broadhead there. And we had to grab that thing with fencing pliers and pull it out. And there was a, a broadhead grown into that shoulder that had passed from the other side. Wow. And and literally barely poked out the 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 meat of the shoulder, but not out the hide. And there was about six inches of carbon arrow that had just had calloused lung around it. And it was hard to pull the arrow out, but we did, you know, and man, that whoever shot that buck in, you know, western Oklahoma, he 
probably feel, felt like he made the perfect shot, but that animal lived and it wasn't recent. You know, that animal lived years, uh, you know, with, with that injury and, and kept, you know, and, and fought it. So you have to, you really do have to spend that time visualizing the absolute perfect shot you can make and, and visualize as many details of it as you can, you know, and it doesn't have to be at the moment where you're getting ready to make your shot. Like you said, when you're walking around, you should be playing out scenarios in your mind. Like when I go around this corner, there's going to be a freaking muley down in the straw. He's going to have a couple does and, you know, play out your scenarios and, and you'll be surprised at how many times weird things your brain's thinking up while you're bored walking around hunting, how many times you actually end up making them happen <laughs> and come to life. Cause I've had it happen so many times. And the more you can engage in that whole process and the more you can think about all the details of what happens in hunting, then the more likely you are to make a perfect shot and not, you know, unfortunately a marginal shot and it happens but it also happens when you don't focus on all the details and and i think that's probably part of my problem is the tree was 34 yards and in my opinion it was a big elk he's only 30 yards i'm gonna put my 30 yard pin on his heart which i should have had my 30 yard pin halfway up the body and I shot underneath him because he was 33 yards. He was one step in front of the tree. He wasn't 30, but in my mind, it was like big elk. Just your pins are on there. You're fine. And like you said, it, there's more to it. You have to focus on the specifics because I got content with he's 30 something. My 30 yard pins on him. Go ahead and make your shot. And it came back and bit me. Man, that's great you share that, John. That because um, it is failure is such a prerequisite to bow hunting, and whether it's failing on the stock or failing at the shot, it happens to to all of us. And you're right, guys see all your successes and think, well, the guy never misses. That guy never makes a mistake, you know. But it like we we all make them. I just think it's great you can reflect upon it and and learn from it and realize, you know. I do that sometimes too, where I don't execute as good a shot when they're close as they do when they're far. And I have to work on that to really execute a quality shot when they're close. And, and you're right, paying attention to those details of where you're aiming on that animal. And it's a fine line when you're getting a shot at an animal between seizing the opportunity and between being patient, not shooting at the wrong angle or trying to force that shot into too tight of a window. Like you have to uh, like it, it's a fine line that you have to make the decision. You're right. Like um, uh, visualizing these encounters, the animal turning left, turning right, laying down and the shot you're going to make on them. Those all help. But in that moment, it, it's really being patient and waiting for that right angle because you only get one shot at to put that arrow in there through the vitals. And and most of the time, lungs harder liver and they die. Sometimes some weird stuff can happen like your bull. I don't know, like if it's just forward, just low, if it skips off a rib, you know, and I have to be really careful. So, John, like I'm like, you know, you're 6'5", I'm 5'7". I'm like the <laughs> adverse of you, right? My draw length's 26 and a half inches. So for me, I have to stay away from that shoulder. Like I have to stay away from it on elk. I have to stay away from it on whitetail. 
antelope, whatever it is. Like I can get through the thin part of the shoulder at times, but I've just had too many shots that I try to tuck too tight that I hit that shoulder and I don't get penetration and I don't get them. And I, you know, try to shoot a heavy arrow, good broadhead, the whole deal. But I just know, like, I can't create the same energy as you with a 30 or 31 inch draw or maybe even longer than that, you know, like, so, so for me, I have to aim back off the shoulder a little bit. And I try to aim for the center of the lungs there. That way, if I miss left, I'm in the liver. If I'm, or, you know, if I miss back, I'm to the liver. If I miss front, you know, I'm right in the pocket right in there. But I've had to develop how to aim at animals. And, and as you get talking about it, your aiming spot is always changing, too, because the, the angle on that animal, it's like it's tough to pay attention to those details, but it, it, it pays such dividends to realize he's slightly quartering away or slightly quartering towards and then sticking that arrow right in that right spot, aiming back off your spot to drive it through him and hit that offside shoulder. But practicing and visualizing that and putting that shot in the right place, and that's the, the key to harvesting animals consistently. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Yeah. Well, uh, man, I've taken a bunch of your time. So that was great, John. Like you flowed through a lot of my questions, just answering my original questions, how you would uh, talk about kneeling and how you transition into uh, shooting in the wind and downhill and uphill. And, and I think that's like the, the most important message to get out to our audience is just that that in-depth conversation about the moment of truth and those details. Um, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot, Brian. Yep. Um, all right. And so guys can find you a, a knock on podcast. Um, you've got knock on TV on your YouTube channel. Um, uh, YouTube is knock on archery. Knock on um, archery. Yeah. And Instagram's knock on TV kind of to go with what was available at the time. So, uh, yep. Knock on archery for, um, the YouTube channel and knock on TV for Instagram. Otherwise knock on podcast. Yeah, yeah, and, and I also – I see um, – gosh, I've heard so many good things. I've got to check out that line of releases you have. So you have a two-finger release. Just real quick before I let you go, the advantage of a two-finger release. Well, I really feel like the less you know, the less hands you have on the, re the release or the less meat, so to speak, that you have on there, um, just the less likely you are to torque it in two different directions. One is – kind of the angle of the release. So as you draw a handheld release back, you know, your hand can be flat or you can completely invert it. Um, so it seems like the less fingers you have, the less like you, likely you are to, to have a variance in that inversion um, just because it's, it's actually easier with two fingers to just get your index finger underneath your jawline and your middle fingers right above the jawline. And that, that is your anchor position. Um, and then also the rocker position of the release. So, you know, if you can imagine a handheld release, if you pull more with your pinky than with your index, you're going to rock it one direction. Whereas if you're pulling more with your index versus your pinky, you'll rock it the other direction. And both of those different rocker positions will cause a variation in impact downrange. So by having less fingers on the release, you're able to, to find your anchor position consistently because you're only really focusing on the two fingers um, versus, you know, having more and maybe trying to get your pinky more on your face or your index finger more on your face. And then the rocker position 
obviously if you only have your index and your middle finger on the release, you're not having to worry about your ring finger or your pinky finger pulling that release more one shot versus the other. And I just feel like once people shoot them, and I think you can see from if you follow some of the hashtags or kind of do a little bit of background check for people that are shooting like the Noctuid or the Silverback or if you're a hinge shooter, the Too Smooth, um, I think you'll see people that try a handheld release for the first time are super consistent in saying I'm more accurate with this, period. Oh, I believe it. That all makes sense. Um, yeah, and I've always dropped my pinky. I've always shot the three finger, but I've got to got to try your two finger and and also what i think is great about that is john like you have they all fit the same uh profile of your hand so all of a sudden your thumb your tension release and then your your hinge they're all the same size and same fit to your hand which creates a consistent anchor point throughout all three releases so man i just they look like really killer releases i got to get one in my hand so i'll do so after after we hang up and uh and uh check it out all right. Well, like I said, I, I appreciate you having me, Brian, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. I know a lot of people uh, really value the the podcast that you're doing and, and your blog. So uh, all the best and keep doing it, man. Yeah, right on. Thanks a bunch, and thanks again, John. We'll talk soon. All right. Okay, bye. All right, guys fun podcast with john uh thanks to him for taking the time and being on and being able to stretch it into a long podcast uh man i'm just so fortunate uh to be able to do a deep dive on on archery and 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 thoughts and shooting process with a guy like john dudley uh pretty lucky and then to be able to release it to all you guys and you know, I'd love having on a mix and match of guests, uh, of known guests, and then, you know, also guys that you haven't heard of that are consistent killers. And it just seems like, you know, we're getting close to our 200th episode, and I just feel like I'm as excited about the podcast as I've ever been. I'm, I'm as excited about the content and, and uh, guests we're having on, and it's just such a fun platform, and I'm just so lucky to be able to, to be the host of it and... um interview these great guys and have these great conversations and and learn as well as I'm getting out information gosh it's just making me such a, a more of a conscientious bow hunter and um you know the the better you get at sharing the information the the more it sinks in your own head and so I just love sharing the journey with you guys and having on these different guests and in-depth conversation um I swear I just uh I get to to lead one of the best lives and you know you can you can always look to other people and see how they have it better, you know, and but just that comparison, um I I always say that quote, comparison is the thief of all happiness. It really is about being content and happy with what you have and great family and friends and I get to bow hunt a ton. Uh you know, I I get to to share it with you guys, and I have this support around the podcast, man. It's just a special thing. So I sure am fortunate. Uh, just want to thank John again for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I want to thank our sponsors. So uh, Sitka Gear, I uh, mentioned that lightweight hoodie I love. 
Also, their heavyweight hoodie, man, is that a good layer. Um, I love that heavyweight hoodie. It pretty much comes with me on every hunt. Uh, I wear it from the early season hunts, keeping warm in the morning or the evenings, to these late season hunts. I have that layer with a vest on that I do a lot of my hiking in, unless it's just gnarly, bitter cold, you know. And and then I'll have, you know, my insulating jacket. Um, I always, gosh, I always forget the name of that insulating jacket it's the kelvin uh so the kelvin light jacket man that thing is sure sweet for an insulating layer um they just build great great technical hunting clothing and um i sure love using it and i love those guys as a sponsor so if you're in the market for a new layer this season uh make sure to check out sitka i also want to thank sportsman's warehouse uh, they carry great brands uh, like i told you earlier they carry sitka so you can go in there and try it on and um, I love the, the knowledgeable staff and just the array of actual physical items. We're in the today's uh, day and age, you know, we order so much off the Internet, but it's such an advantage to be able to go in and, and see what you're looking at, look at the quality, touch and feel it, try it on, look at the fabrics, look through the glass we're going to buy. And uh, so Sportsman's Warehouse is such a great resource for that. Uh, make sure to give those guys your support as well. And, um, yeah, that's the podcast. Oh, um, yeah, we'll tag John and, uh, um, some of our Instagram posts. Um, thanks to you guys for all the support. And, uh, if you like the podcast, make sure to reach out to John and, and, uh, let him know that you liked it on it. Bring such weight to the podcast when the guests get to hear from you guys that listened in, that liked the conversation. And, uh, then we can get, you know, him on again and guys like him on again for quality conversation. So I, you guys always do a great job of that and I really appreciate it. And, um, let's see, head over to the Eastman's office, get that 200th episode recorded, have some fun, have some laughs, going to go do the Christmas party. So it should be a good time getting together with the crew over there. So hopefully get some dry roads and it's not a, a two man bobsled, man, I spend a lot of time behind the, the truck wheel driving. Um, Oh, here I got a call coming in. It's the report from Dan in Idaho. Hold on one second. Okay. So, uh, I better get this, uh, get the report from Dan. Um, yeah, we've been bow hunting together. He went to a, a new area. sounds like there's a lot of deer and, and, uh, so anyways, um, got on a nice four point buck last night, like 40 yards away. So he's grinding hard to try to kill one. And, uh, so yeah, I better, uh, I better give him a shout here, but, uh, I'll catch up with you guys next week. Thanks as always for all the support and, um, yeah, that's a wrap.